Welcome back to class. Glad to have you. And if you are just here kind of for the first time or first time in a while um, in particular, I'd love to thank the parents for coming. Um, we're having a kind of a, a unique, we're interrupting our normal, um, our normal kind of schedule, although it actually kind of fits, to talk about adolescent transgenderism. And so I'm really grateful for the parents that have come just to kind of engage in this on something that's um, relevant to lots and lots of our children and, and maybe to everybody in light of that. Um, there's a guy named David Foster Wallace, and he gave a famous commencement speech in which he opened with a brief little story that goes like this. There was once uh, an older fish swimming along in the ocean, and he swam past two younger fish, and he said, good morning, boys. How's the water? And the younger fish didn't reply. And then a moment later, one of the younger fish said to the other, what the heck is water? <laughs> What's that story mean? What the heck is water? What does that mean? What is it? Is it your gears churning? What does that story actually mean? I think what Wallace, you want to take a stab at it? Sure. If you don't know any other uh, reality, then the reality you're in is going to be, you know, what you know, and you're not going to question. Excellent, right? So, we're, so there's an environment that we're surrounded by of which we're not even aware. We would look at fish, and we're, it's obvious to us that fish swim in water because we don't. It's self-evident. Like, how can you not know the water? Well, if it's all you've ever been in, you just don't know there's anything different, right? We are in an environment, and very, very often the environment that we're in um, shapes us and influences us in ways that we may not have any consciousness of, and yet that influence is real. I told that story to my kids a few weeks ago to kick off a conversation with them about the things that, that about the influences that affect them, uh, but that are hard to see. And I asked them if they would consider their own particular environment. What is the water that you swim in? What's it been like for you? My kids are all born, you know, like 97, 99, 02, and 04. So in, that, in the last, you know, 20 years, what is the water that you swim in? How has it influenced you? And in order to help them kind of recognize to get out of their bowl of water and into a different bowl of water or, or to recognize that theirs is distinct, I specifically asked them, how is the water that you have grown up in distinct from, different from the water that you perceive your mom and I grew up in. What do you, what do you think they said? I'm curious what you think they said about that question. What, how are they aware that, the, that the, the world they live in is different? What has changed from my world as a child to their world as a child? You, they're here, so they can't answer, so let these guys go. Yeah, Herrick? Technology. Okay, that was one of their answers. Very good. Technology? Social media. So, okay, you are, you are literally two for two, and if you can get the whole trifecta, that would be amazing. They said, and I quote, technology, one said technology, one said social media, and one said something else. And I will warn you, the one that said something else, said, the one who gave this third answer that you haven't yet said, this is the answer, absolutely, anything else is wrong, this is the answer. <laughs> and what is the thing that we're missing? And it's, it, it fits in the set. Tolerance? What's that? Tolerance? No, it was still in the set of tech, although that's, that's, there's something true about that. The third answer that they gave was cell phones. Technology, cell phones, and social media. The, 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 this, this thing has been absolutely transformative for them. Okay, now, 
moving aside from the read my mind game or read my children's mind game, how would you answer that question? What's it like to be a, you know, a 15-year-old in 2020? What is this, 2021? What's it like to be 15 or 18 or 12 right now that's different from when you were 15 or 18 or 12 you know, back in the day? How is, how is the world a different place? Yeah. The innocence is gone. The innocence is gone. Now, why do you I, I'm, unpack that a little bit? In what sense? Um... Well, when I look at how I was at 13 and 12 and in middle school and, you know, we had our Friday sock hops and who we danced with boys. And now, because of social media, I have watched 12, 13-year-olds and they know way more than we did. Yeah, and I'm going to guess, and pardon me for this is invasive, but I'm going to guess that when you were 15, no boy ever asked you to send them naked pictures of yourself. Is this a safe bet? Okay. Do you know that's not, that's literally not a safe bet today? Like literally, actually, genuinely is not, not a safe bet today. Yeah. World's different. So in, innocence. Fets? Uh, also, uh, along with the innocence thing, uh, the lack of shame. Shame is a funny thing because it comes in a double set of shame and shamelessness. They, they come as a set. Right, and so you're seeing that there's a that we have less shame. No, I'm saying that the things that people will do that back in the day would be something we never considered doing. Yes. The shame of it. Right. Um, they're doing. Right, and so there is presently a shamelessness. Yeah, that's what I meant. Right. No, no. Yeah, I think that's what you said. But right along with that is a much deeper experience of. Shame. It's a very, it's a very interesting dichotomy of shame and shamelessness. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Go ahead, Zach. And I flip that, and instead of saying the same shamelessness, maybe courage. In regards to more courage, sometimes maybe it's fake courage. Okay, but bro, hang on. Take that back, because I missed, I missed something. Let's take off your mask for just a second. We won't all die. Go ahead. Uh, courage. <laughs> so the courage maybe sometimes through the computer screen could be false courage. Oh yeah. Because I would argue that some things that we're seeing now may have already existed for years. It's just that no one had the real courage to stand up and maybe face scrutiny because of their beliefs or what they are feeling. But now it's a heck of a lot easier to do it either through a screen or not yeah. doing it see in person. Yeah, you'll, you'll see that in inter, interpersonal interactions. People will, people will say something through, through the medium of a screen with such an acerbicness that you would never say face to face to somebody. You just feel an enorm- people feel an enormous amount of comfort to be incredibly bold and brash and uh, in ways that are really very, very unhelpful. Okay, oh, wait, well, I thought Jason had a stand up. I thought you were Jason, and I'll come to you, Brad. Jason? That all of the information in the world that you ever wanted right here, but there's no reliability to very good. So all the information you ever wanted is in your pocket right here. Of course, whether it's reliable or not is yet to be seen. So many things. Okay, so many hands. I'm going to come a bunch of these. Brad, go for it. So I think most of our generation grew up with freedom being sort of like the premier American value, and I think that is not true, especially personal freedom. Yeah. It's now shifted to social justice. Yes. Tolerance, and that's, that's kind of yeah, so values are interesting things. So we generally would all agree with, 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 with surprisingly little variation on what are the cards that should be in the deck of our values. But the sequence, the order with which we place those, what we prioritize one over the other, that has, there's been radical shifts in that. From once upon a time, freedom would have been like the preeminent American value. And I think you're right, that, that is no longer, for sure. Eric? 
There's an, there's an overwhelming persuade, customized persuasion campaign to alter you, to change you, to move you from what you presently think to one other thing. Okay, we can do this. There's way too many hands. We can do this. Oh, this is a provocative question. So, but I have other things that I want to talk to you about too. So I'll give a couple more. Daniel and then Kelly, and then I'm going to steal the microphone back. I would tag on to what Eric said with the inundation of information coming at the kids and their inability to competently filter it out. Yeah as well as uh, difficulty for a parent to monitor what their child has access to. Uh, when, when I was little, uh, you could only be a- Daniel, you were never little. From your mom, because that's how far the cord phone stretched out from the kitchen. <laughs> that's right. And if there was a zero in the girl's phone number, you knew she was the one because it took longer for the rotary. <laughs> <laughs> just the inability or the ineffectiveness of parental monitoring yeah. on the access that kids have nowadays. Yeah, it is a to it's totally, it's an absolutely different world. Okay, Kelly Sue, and then, and then I'm going to go back. Uh, I don't think this has been coming out, but just the change in relationships among peers of this age versus my age. We play outside with our friends in our neighborhood, and these guys today can be far more disembodied in their relationships because they're connected through social media. Also, a sidebar of that is there There are people who are, and this is true of everyone because of social media, people are willing to say things online that they're not willing to say in person to that person. And there's so much freedom of speech and a really, um, you know, whatever, demoralizing, dehumanizing, demoralizing, demeaning way. People will say things online. The bullying is different today than it was when we were younger. Right. Because of these disembodied relationships. Because yeah. Can be in relationship, but apart from each other, it's, it's kind of. Yep. Yeah, in case you couldn't catch all of that, she's just saying the relationships have become so much more disembodied. Can you be more disembodied? They're less bodied, I guess, less embodied relationships. I, I remember that when this began, the first time I became conscious of this, this was a long, long time ago, somebody told me they were talking to somebody last night, blah, 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 which I envisioned two human beings moving their lips. And then it turned out that they were actually I aming each other. Remember I am back in the day? I remember the first time you're like, you're using the word talk to describe instant messaging. And that's not, like, I have, now I have to reimagine this entire conversation because you weren't actually talking. And we're many, many, many steps removed from that. Now, when I was talking about all these things with our kids, I asked them, well, what's the net effect of this? Like, how is this all impacting you? Are kids happier or sadder? And unquestioningly, the answer is sadder, right? There was more anxiety. There was more depression. Nevertheless, right? Is there anybody in this room who doesn't own one of these? Okay. Two. Literally two. Okay. There, these things have benefits, right? There's probably a few more of you that aren't on social media, but probably not that 
many, right? We, we recognize there are some benefits to these things, and yet they come with real costs. The anxiety and depression, there's all kinds of reasons that might be behind that, among them that everybody can compare themselves, their actual life to your curated life, and we're always going to come up short against your curated life, but there's a lack of realness to relationships, all these things. But another one of the things that is passing through in these channels that we're describing is very specific, very specific messaging. This is similar to what Eric said, although I'm going to put a little bit of a finer point on it, that there is very specific messaging that is different that is other, that is not like what you grew up with regarding sex and sexuality and gender. And we could talk about, this could be a 12-week series. We're really planning on just doing this for one week. And I want to have one very specific, narrow focus this morning on the issue of gender and how our children are being messaged and shaped and influenced very differently because of technology and smartphones and social media on gender. And in, specific, in, in, in particular, this morning, I just want to focus on this, on a, on a claim that your children have heard hundreds of times, namely that gender and sex are different things, not just different things, but unrelated things. And here's, here's I'll just give you one, one example of countless examples I could give you. This is from Kelly Gonzalez from the website She Knows, and she proclaims this, just to set the record straight, Gender doesn't have anything to do with your body. <laughs> Nothing at all. Okay? Now, per this perspective, you were actually, and your children were born with a body, and that body was traditionally assumed to point to a particular gender. And based on those assumptions, which may or may not have been accurate, you were assigned a gender, assigned a gender. Some would say you were assigned to sex. There's, a, there's equivocation on that. But eventually, I mean, but essentially it was really just a guess. And in fact, with alarming frequency, it was a bad guess. And it's very possible that your present dissatisfaction in life is best explained by the fact that they guessed wrong that you were not what you appeared to be, for your gender has really, as, and I quote, just to set the record straight, gender doesn't have anything to do with your body. And if you don't think that they mean this, they really do. In fact, Kelly Gonzalez goes on to state this. Just bear with me on this. Yes, all genders, not even both, but all, all genders can menstruate. <coughs> Unlike gender, menstruation is about your body. So anyone with a typically functioning uterus and vagina will menstruate. That's just a biological reality. Did you love the condescension in that remark? That's just a biological reality. So yes, men can have periods. By this, of course, she means men with a vagina and a uterus. And she concludes, in fact, anyone of any gender can have a period. Now, there's all sorts of complexity in that statement. Um, and today, we're not just limiting ourselves to transgenderism, but I really want to specifically focus on adolescent transgenderism. And in particular, 
the claim that the answer to a child's emotional and social woes may be found in chemical and surgical treatment, quote, so that they might more readily reject the gender that was, quote, assigned to them at birth. Of course, this is under the perspective that it's neither inherent nor fundamental, but assigned. So to correct that misassignment, they can, and probably should, in fact, undergo chemical and surgical procedures to permanently alter their bodies so that their bodies will now correspond to their preferred gender. And by the way, if it occurs to you that it will be strange to go through so much grief, given that gender has, and I quote, nothing to do with your body, um, just welcome to the kaleidoscope of transgender reasoning. Sometimes it has nothing to do with your body. Sometimes it has everything to do with your body, okay? Now, I set this up knowingly in a way that points to the absurdities, but not so that we'll run down the rabbit hole of those. That would be, I don't think that's going to advance the, the conversation you want to have. But simply, I want to suggest to you just kind of on the, on the outset that this matters. Like, things are happening in the world. This actually is not some little side weird thing. But this, this is significant, and our ability to describe ourselves and the world around us is genuinely uh, very much up for grabs right now. And the downsides, the societal cost to kind of allowing some of these things to go unchecked, I think are pretty huge. But I don't want to spend our time talking about that. That's another conversation. You can, you can have that conversation later, or maybe we'll do that at another time. But rather, right now, today, what I want to talk about is a very vulnerable population filled with people that would love that we adore, namely children, and in particular, adolescent girls, okay? This matters for the boys as well, but the, it is disproportionately affecting the girls. I want to quote from a book called Irreversible Damage, and I'll tell you more about the book in a minute, but just, just, just listen to this. Gender dysphoria, formerly known as gender identity disorder, is characterized by a severe and persistent discomfort in one's biological sex. This is a real thing, okay? There are reasons that a person might get, that's a real thing, that, that, that a person could be, be, have severe and persistent discomfort with their biological sex. She continues, it typically begins in early childhood, ages two through four, though it may grow more severe in adolescence. But in most cases, nearly 70% of cases, childhood gender dysphoria resolves Historically, it afflicted a tiny sliver of the population, roughly 0.01%, and almost exclusively boys. Before 2012, in fact, there was no scientific literature on girls ages 11 to 21 ever having developed gender dysphoria at all. It simply just wasn't a thing on the girl's side of the spectrum. It was all guys. But listen to this. In the last decade... That has changed dramatically. The Western world has seen a sudden surge of adolescents claiming to have gender dysphoria and self-identifying as transgender. For the first time in medical history, natal girls are not only present among those so identifying, they constitute the majority. This is all new. This is changing, and it's pretty strong evidence that there's more factors going on here that influence this. DSM-5, which is, you know, DSM-5 is, it's the 
what's it stand for? It's like Diagnostic and Statistic Manual for something. Mental Disorders, is that what it is? Something like that. And this is version 5. It predicts an incidence of gender dysphoria as less than 1 in 10,000. But a CDC study in 2017 revealed the incidence of gender dysphoria in American high school students to be 1 in 50. Mm. Okay. Does that get your attention? From less than 1 in 10,000 to 1 in something is going on. In Great Britain, there's been a 4,000% increase of gender dysphoria among teens. 4,000% in the last decade. And three-fourths of those reported cases are girls. Now, 20 years ago, you wouldn't, it just simply didn't exist on the girls' side of the spectrum. Uh, and now it does. Now, and by the way, again, three-fourths girls means one-fourth guys. This is still impacting the boys. So this is not unique to the, to the girls, but it is disproportionately powerful on the girls' side. So something's going on. Something has changed. Somebody's added something to the water, if you will. <laughs> the question is, what's happening in the water? And how do we engage with it? How do we, how do we recognize this? The, the woman that I'm quoting here, Abigail Schreier, she's not a believer. She's not writing from a perspective of Christian faith. She's a freelance writer. Her most, she does a great deal of work with the Wall Street Journal. Um, but she, somebody approached her and said, something is going on. Something is happening. Will you look into this? And she tried to pass it off on somebody else whose expertise more lay in this. But nobody else wanted to touch it. And so she started to dig. And what she found alarmed her terribly. And she wrote a book. And that book is called Irreversible Damage by Abigail Schreier. And one of the things that I hope you might consider doing is, is reading her book. But I can summarize for you her theory. I don't, I don't offer this to you from some perspective of omniscience, that I, as if I would know. How would I know how, what's going on here? Um, nor is this, nor does, I very often will tell you things that are in Scripture, and, and I want you to take that with the weight of Scripture. This isn't that, okay? So I don't know. This might be true. There might be in five years or in 10 years or in 35 years. Maybe we'll know better what's going on. This is, this is kind of an operating theory. You can take it for what it's worth. Um, but I think it's a pretty good place to start. Her theory is this, that it's hard to be a teenage girl, mm-hmm. right? Is that, that part feels pretty sound to me. Is that, can we agree to that part? And that, that in the same way that all human beings, we're all broken people and we all live in a broken world. And as broken people in a broken world, we are constantly trying to come up with strategies to get through the day, just all day long. You do this, your life is just a great big patchwork of coping mechanisms that there are certain strategies that girls have tended to employ that spread in their own communities like contagions. Eating disorders is one of them. Cutting is another one, right? So there's, there's complex but very real emotional difficulties that lie behind these things. Um, and the third, the, the third thing that goes in the set kind of, of eating disorders and cutting strategies is suicide. And these things tend to spread like contagions in groups. These girls are not evil kids. They're just, they're hurting. And they have found something that for some reason, in some way, helps them get through today. Tomorrow will have to worry about itself. But today, right now, this seems to help. And they're hurting, and they're broken, and they're trying to make their lives work. Now, one of the things that we do know, this is actually pretty, there's pretty solid social science on this, is a lot of these social strategies to get through, to help people get through the day, they tend to spread with far greater contagiousness among networks of girls than they do among boys. 
I am told that uh, by people that work in this work in this field that you simply cannot house girls with eating disorders together. That if you have like a, a home or a, or a setting that is that is trying to help girls be rehabilitated through an eating disorder, and you put them together, they they will both get worse rather than both getting better. That they tend to feed off each other. Um, I'm not sure of all the reasons behind that. It's certainly not meant to be an unkind characterization. In fact, it it might have something to do with the fact that women tend to be more encouraging and less likely to rebuke and confront. And so there's a, more, there's a greater tendency to like affirm and approve and even affirm you in something that's bad. But again, that, that, is, that is not meant to be uh, an unkind characterization, right? Um, if, it's, if it is the fact that women or girls are more likely to spread unhealthy behaviors, men are more likely to grow up to be serial killers, okay? So... We've kind of all got our issues, right? But (laughs) here's what's different, radically different. Do you know what every adult professional says to a girl with an eating disorder? What do they say? You do know. Yeah, they say, no, no, stop. Stop, sweetheart, hang on. Let's work this. They work to find a better strategy. They work to help them. They, 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 any, any competent professional is going to move towards a girl that's gone from 105 to 95 to 87 to 86.5. And they're, going to, they're never going to say, man, you look amazing. They're never going to capture that and champion that. And, and broadcast. Now, there are communities that do this. If you're, if you're aware of in the eating disorder, you've got the pro-Anna community. Have you heard of this? Anna, what does Anna mean? Anorexia. And then what's the, what's the companion to the pro-Anna sites? Do you guys know all this? Mia. Mia and Anna are basically, so Mia from bulimia and Anna from anorexia. Anna and Mia are kind of characterized as almost, I don't want to overstate this, but like there's these, this, this, goddess of perfection. There's, there's these things that Anna and me are, are there are communities and, and of places where, where this is championed and it's, it's idealized and girls will find themselves in these pro-Anna and pro-Mia communities where they're getting tips on how to be more disciplined in their eating disorder, how to be more deceptive to those that are trying to prevent them. There's communities of this, but universally the adults and the professionals will interfere with those and say, no, 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 there's a better way to do this and to help them, help them find a way out. But you guys, what, what is said to a girl or a boy who comes out that, uh, as transgender today? Do you know? We're proud of you. We are so proud of you. It is endless affirmation and endless approval. Guys, there are children that are going on puberty blockers. Puberty blockers. That tells you we're exceptionally, exceptionally early in the process. Puberty blockers. Taking testosterone. Having double mastectomies. And the whole language is to cheer for you. To tell you how brave you are. How amazing you are. How wonderful you are. And so if you are, just imagine that you're a girl. And you are kind of socially outside the desired center. Life is hard. It's always hard. It's really hard if you don't have friends. If it's hard if you're struggling to fit in. But then you find yourself, you find one of these communities, right, with YouTube videos. And they explain to you that all of your troubles can be explained because you were misgendered at birth. And you find, you notice that the approval that you crave is just being handed out to all of these other brave people that have joined this community, 
is a term for your glitter family. So whereas your family might reject you and your family might not understand you and your hateful, foolish, idiot parents won't give you what you want, we will. So come into this. And these, and these girls, are, they're, they're, they receive coaching on where to go, how to get the, home, the, the hormone treatment. How do you phrase this, right? You don't want to talk about how this just started for you. You got to say, this is ever since I was two years old, I've always known this. You get coached on what you need to do, and thereby you are facilitated into making these uh, permanent, genuinely permanent, life-altering decisions. Something that probably would have resolved 70% of the time childhood gender dysphoria resolves itself. But there's a community of people that's jumping in and saying, no, 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 don't let it resolve because this is your true you. And we're going to teach you how to, we're going to teach you what to say, how to say it. And this idea of somebody approving of you is so delicious, so desirable that you would make some pretty radical decisions well before you have the mental ability to understand the implications of it. And you guys, it's all happening right now. Now, again, this is essentially what I'm packaging for you, what Abigail Schreier, how, how she explains it. And there, there very well might be missing components or other, other components that I don't know, but I'm not claiming any expertise, but simply that we know that it, the numbers are real, that it is happening. The phenomena that, that, that have tended to work in networks of girls are happening, and these things seem to be adding up in powerful ways to be very harmful to folks. Kelly Sue. Just to add that, that there's no... Uh Parental permission required for these young. Yo, yeah. Medical professionals are instructed and and they're required to affirm and to uh, service. Yes. And no permission is required from. Yeah. Parents or anybody. They can make these amazing decisions at such a vulnerable age with no counselor insight. Yeah. So Kelly's just pointing out that one of the, and one of the things that, that's very frequent in the book is that um, parental rights are like not a thing in this whole space. Right, that kids can do an end run around their parents um, and get and make and and have access to hormone to puberty blockers to hormone treatment and even in some places to surgery. There are schools, certainly universities, are giving this stuff out. Lots and lots of universities are, are giving out testosterone, basically on, on self diagnosis. Like self, I mean, in what space of medicine do we get to diagnose ourselves? Right, but this is happening on on, on broad scales and it's in, incredibly complex. Yeah, Fetz. Uh, is the simplicity of the end game of this just a normalization of something that used to be uh, perversion? Is, okay, is the simplicity of the end game of this? Yeah, like, what's the motive here? Yeah, I'm trying to think of like what, what, what's, why do they care so much about this? Other than it just makes you feel better for your own. Like, remember when Freud said something about like. Every little boy wants to have intercourse with his mom or something like that. And is that? Yeah. So I don't, I honestly, if that's, I don't know. There's, okay, there's, so depending on who your they is, like, I think some of the they that would, that would be down this are the genuinely want to help kids. They believe what they're saying and then they see, they see children that are suffering and they're hurting and they want them to find acceptance in life. I think some people have a good motive, right? There's some people that I think are more, there is a more insidiousness to this. But if I were to just jump all the way to the end of the line, there's the way, way into the line, the end goal of this is the death of reason, okay? And this is, this is at the end of the day, and this is not the, that's not where I want to place this, but just because I can't resist the opportunity to say this for the 20th time. The, the, the ultimate, I think that the ultimate satanic impulse behind all of these things is the absolute eradication of the ability to make accurate statements about reality. 
okay? But that's the long game. This is, transgender is not the end of the, it's not the last stop on the train station. There's bigger things going on here. But that conversation, as tempting as that is, is I think less immediate than the one right now. Okay, what do I do? Because I think that my kid is actually vulnerable to this, and I love her. The delight of my soul is my son, and I'm concerned that he, I know that he actually has a whole bunch of friends that are in this space, and he's beginning to say things that make me think that their arguments are more persuasive to him than my arguments, and what do I do? That's really the space that I want to think about this is, what do we do with the real live kids that we really love and that we want to help them not get drawn into something that will have de- potentially devastating consequences to them, okay? So, yeah, you want to stay on, you want to, can we stay on that, that level? Great. So good. Give them affirmation. Yes. And I see it as a middle school teacher. Like I've seen this over and over. And wherever you get affirmation is where you go. Yeah. So the Christian community doesn't know how to do that in a God glorifying way that's still drawing truth, but like truly empathizing that that might be a real daily struggle for a kid that they are attracted to something that feels unnatural and they're told that it's wrong. They like we have to be a community that like recenters it, but in a way that is both loving and doesn't bend or treat. Yes, amen, 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 amen. So excellent, I'm so glad you said that. So, so can you complete this phrase? Jesus came from the Father full of? Grace. Okay, grace and truth. Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. You guys, we, we, have, we cannot ever, ever, ever let go of either one of those things. We mustn't, we can't, we, ha- we have to. And sometimes that stretch may feel really difficult and you are certainly going to hear people tell you that if you tell the truth, or what you think is the truth, then you are fundamentally ungracious. Okay, I don't accept that. It's, these, are not, these are not irreconcilable things. We must tell the truth. It's crucial that we never enter in, like, we cannot enter into a make-believe world. We have to live in light of, accurate statements about reality are of paramount importance. But we must become very skilled at saying accurate statements about reality graciously. And gently, because we're, what we're talking about here, who we're talking about are real people, adult or child, that are hurting, right? And just to like mock them or ridicule them, that's not going to help them. Well, there, there are things that are mock-worthy in this. There are absurdities that need to be called out as absurdities. But at the level of dealing with real human beings, our, our mode has got to be one of kindness and compassion. And as you said, empathy. I, you, you used a phrase, something like, where the affirmation is is where they go. How did you say that? They go wherever they're affirmed, right? This is true. And so this is going to be one of the punchlines we'll get to is how do we, if, just think about this, you guys. If, if kids are making these horrible decisions, mutilating their bodies, dr- dramatically altering their futures in order to have somebody tell them they love them and desire them and want them around, like we should be winning that game, right? We should be the place that people are willing to like saw their arms off to get into this community because this is where the love is, right? So the fact that it's, 
that is, perhaps there is a flow of traffic in the other direction should really cause us to know, oh, what can we do to be the place that people are drawn to? Becky. Yeah, it's kind of like in response to what Beth said a couple times ago, but I think the urgency from the medical community or the reason that, like, the motive or whatever, is it has been, like, they tie it to the suicide depression rates. And if you talk to someone, a parent especially, who has kids that struggle with transgender stuff, it becomes a very, like, the reason it becomes so dicey, so fast in conversation is, like, they, they, they fear they lose their kid. Right. Permanency with suicide, where it's like, well, maybe if I let them go down this path, at least they'll still be alive, sort of thing. And so I think that is, like, the... Um, You think I got picked up? Do I need to restate that? You think that's other? Okay, then I won't bother. But I, I really appreciate you saying it because very much what, what, what we, we should recognize, the folks that disagree with my position on this, and maybe some of you in this room might disagree with my position on this, like there is a space at which um, people are trying to make sense. You're talking about broken people in a broken world. You might be a broken parent in a broken world trying to figure out what do I do to love my kid? I'll do anything. What can I do to, to rescue, to help, to, to heal? And if you are persuaded that this is the most effective strategy, then you very well will go down that. What Schreier points out in her book is that generally speaking, that hole just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. and You can't get to the back of it. That if you give your kid puberty blockers because you think that's going to help buy you some time, that what you're really doing is driving them further down this road. And in fact, you're right, Becky, the suicide rates are very, very high, but they're no better on kids that have had the transgender reassignment or the gender reassignment surgery. The outcomes are not helpful, but you're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to question the, the, the prevailing wisdom on this. And so whatever, our strat whatever strategies we have, we want to see real people really be rescued from something that is really harmful, very dangerous, very difficult for them. And if we're, if we're not going to be gracious and empathetic and thoughtful and kind and gentle and welcoming and safe, then we're going to have a hard time doing that. I'll give you a, one quick personal story as the clock endlessly ticks. Um, we, Kelly and I were staying at the home of some friends of ours. This was a while ago. I mean, gosh, Kelly, what was this, 15 years ago? Um, and uh, their son, Wesley, came home. Uh, we were there when this all happened. Um, he came home and told them that he was no longer their son. He was, in fact, their daughter. And so began a years-long journey um, of enormous difficulty as our friends loved their son and tried to, like, figure out what does this mean and how do we how do, we do it all. Um, and then sometime thereafter, um, so Wesley is my friend's son, and Paul is Wesley's boyfriend. And I know it gets a little bit complex, but... So Wesley identified both as gay and transgender, and Paul was gay and transgender. So they were two gay men pretending to be gay women. I guess that's how you would frame this. They were in a relationship. However, listen to this. Um, this is from Paul, from Wesley's boyfriend. He wrote, he wrote to my friends, and he said, West, and this is years into this whole thing. After they had both stopped taking hormones. And Wesley, or Paul said this. Wesley is more than ready to get a haircut and to stop pretending to be female. I stopped pretending. I'm sorry. I stopped presenting that way months ago when I took my new job. 
but I've kept my hair long because my ID has been updated and I don't want cashiers thinking I stole a girl's purse or something. It was a gradual change the first time and neither, neither of us is expecting a hard reset. Listen to this. The good news, if there can be called any for people like us, is that there are a lot more who are willing to vocalize that indeed the trans life was the wrong way to go. In the same way that it was, quote, reassuring to know there were people like us when we started identifying as trans, it's reassuring to find out that others are not just coping, but thriving with the fact that we can admit that we were wrong and confidently live our lives knowing we overcame that. And then Wesley's mom adds to it, Wesley texted me today and he's changing his name back and we can call him Wesley. There had been a great big fight of what he was insisting on being called. And then she says, her final comment here is, there's no explanation for this in our minds and anyone familiar with transgender other than this is only because of the work, of God, the work and the grace of God. We're so thankful and amazed. We hope that this is an encouragement to you of God's work and answer to prayers. And it was, I mean, it was a long time that our friends just, they loved their son and they just struggled to know what do I do in the midst of all of this craziness going on. Okay, clock is running. So let me just say a couple things. I want to leave this with some action point. Okay, what do we do? What do we do in this, in this kind of world gone mad with children that we love that are hurting? What do we do? First of all, we're simply starting this conversation with you. I want to put this, maybe you're very well aware that maybe you're not, but I want to encourage you to begin doing on your own some primary research. I would suggest that Abigail Schreier's book um, is one particular place that you could start. Um, and for those of you whose ears are not tender, I, I will not recommend it, but if you happen to already listen to Joe Rogan, who has an incredibly popular and fantastically profane, I mean, I'm telling you, <laughs> he's exceptionally comfortable with his language. And so if you are not extremely comfortable with, you know, just enormous amounts of profanity, don't listen to Joe Rogan, but he, he interviews her, and it's a very insightful interview. Or you could just read her book. Um, but I would say, sincerely say, you might want to get that book soon. Okay? I do, like, probably one of the leading books on this topic among adults is called When Harry Became Sally by Ryan Anderson. And it's gone, baby, gone. You can't get it. Amazon no longer carries it. Barnes & Noble no longer carries it. We seem to be in a cultural moment where there is an unprecedented corporate will to remove unpopular voices from the stage. So you, if you want to get it, you might want to get it soon. Okay? Second thing, um, and maybe there's other direct research. Abigail Stryer's work may not be the only thing you need to read, but it's one thing that I've read and I found helpful, and I think she's done some pioneering work specifically for adolescents. There's other stuff about adults, okay? Second thing, um, we are going to be holding some meetings with your children, but they'll be age-appropriate. I'll be doing some meetings at Club 56. Um, I will not talk about transgenderism. I'm going to talk about the fish and the water and, and, and invite the children to think about what are the environments that influence them. I want to start that conversation, but I hope that you, if, you're, if you've got fifth and sixth graders, I hope that you might follow up on that conversation. I'll be doing that in two weeks. Two Sundays from now we'll be doing this. Um, and I hope to really kind of just like tee it up for you to take things with the space and uh, in the, with the speed and the pacing that you would like to. Um, but I would encourage you to follow up with your kids to ask them about these questions, what they're hearing, what they know. Um, ask about their friend circles and their YouTube videos. Listen to their perspective. And, and enter into it with them. Um, find out where are your children vulnerable to false ideas 
and unhelpful things? What can you do to deepen your own connection with them so that you'd be a place of safety to discuss these things? Um, fourth thing is I would love it if you would just let Quig and I or what well, Quig and I and or Will and Whitney for the high school and Darcy and BA for the younger ones, let us know um, if you find kind of tender vulnerabilities in your own family regarding these issues. Um, know this, you are not alone. Uh, I, I know a number of families here that are struggling with this and we would love to be invited into the conversation. Again, it's not that we've got some brilliant expertise. This is new to all of us. But we love your kids, and we know that you love your kids. And if we can be helpful to you, then we really would love to do that. Um, we want them to feel safe. We want them to be loved. And we don't want them to ever have a reason to pursue some fraught strategy in a, in a quest to make life work. Um, and in fact, let me, even, let me just shout this out. To those of you whose children are like, this is not a risk thing for you at all. Your kids are the social center you might have a different conversation with them about what it looks like. Like, it's one thing for, like, a 50-year-old to welcome a kid. But who cares about me, right? Like, the kids that need to be loved, they need to be loved by 15-year-olds and 12-year-olds and 16-year-olds, right? They need to be loved by the kids that are, that are in that place. And wouldn't it be amazing if our kids, our communities, were the places of warmth and welcome? We all, you, you know this as an adult. There are some people that it's effortless to have a conversation with. Some adults, right? And there are some adults that it's effortful to have a conversation with, right? And you probably are like, I'm going to go do the easy one. I would rather be in the car with the cool kids than in the car with the kids where it's going to be like a little more stilted, right? We all have this thing. But what if we decided that it wasn't about me? What if your kids grew in the maturity to consider others' needs as more important than their own and to make it a point to love and to welcome and to help in the kid that maybe it's just not as, they're not as funny or sometimes I'm not sure how to respond to them because they just, you know, there's this thing. What if we were coaching and training our kids to be uh, the ambassadors to people that long to be loved, that want to be welcomed and are willing to do so in costly ways? That would be good news. And perhaps we might see this whole thing as a, as a wake-up call from God that we might refine our skills of the place that people feel loved and welcomed. Okay? we got to stop. Um, but if, you've, if this raises a question for you, again, Quig or I or Will or Whitney or Darcy or BA, we'd love to hear from you and be helpful to you as you're walking through it. All right. Thank you, friends.